Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in African American Studies channel. I am your host, Ari Barbalatz. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with Dakota Irby. He is Associate Professor of Educational Policy Studies at University of Illinois at Chicago, where he teaches in the Urban Education Leadership Program. He is also founding director of the university's Call Me Mister initiative, which supports the development of male teachers of color. We are here today to discuss his new book, Stuck Improving. Racial Equity and School Leadership, published in Cambridge by Harvard Education Press 2021. Dakota, I'm delighted to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari, for the invitation. Thank you. To begin, uh, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? And were there any formative events in your early life that stimulated the scholar you would later become or catalyzed your intellectual journey? Yeah, thanks so much for uh, the question and for having me on. Uh, so again, my name is Dakota Irby. Um, I grew up in South Carolina, mostly being called DJ, which is my nickname, which is why I have the J in the middle of my, uh, the J initial in most of my um, publications. So I grew up in South Carolina um, in a, uh, home with my mother and my two sisters, um, in a predominantly black neighborhood, uh, that it is a slight mix between slightly rural and suburban. Um, my formative years, I went to a range of different schools. Um, and I think that I would say the things that really shaped, uh, who I have become were my experiences moving between many different institutions from schools, a private school, for example, an elementary school where I was one of the handful of black children and then going to a middle school that was very racially and socioeconomically diverse. And then going to my neighborhood, which was predominantly black where my friends were black, my family were all black, my church was black. And so I think one of the most important kind of formative experiences that I had was moving between these different social spaces and institutions and trying to figure out, you know, what it meant to be a part of any one of these communities. Um, I went to a high school uh, called Malden High School in Malden, South Carolina, that is very similar to the book. Um, it's very similar to the school that I study and write about in the book, Stuck Improving. Um, it was about 20% students of color, 
um, and students of color were very much on the margins of the school community. Um, I happened to not be, um, but most and many of my peers were. Um, I went to College of Charleston in South Carolina for undergrad. Um, from there, I graduated with a degree in economics and went to Temple University to study geography and urban studies in Philadelphia. While I was there, um, I volunteered to work with some young people to, believe it or not, teach them how to use Microsoft Word and email. And in that process became uh, really engaged with working with young people uh, and decided to go back and pursue a degree in urban education because I found it very frustrating that despite um, children and their families, young people and their families' best efforts, that the school system still did not work out for them the way that I thought and that it should. Um, so that's a little bit about my background. Um, I have a PhD in urban education. And from there, I've worked at a few universities. I'm now an associate professor, as you mentioned, at University of Illinois at Chicago. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope your readers will gain from it? Yeah. So what inspired me to write Stuck Improving? Um, it, it's many things. One of them being uh, the real need for uh, in-depth accounting of what it feels like and what the experience is of people who are making a concerted effort to make an organization, in this particular case, a school community um, and a school work better for black and brown young people. Um, so on the one hand, from what we know in the research about organizational improvement and organizational development, we know that there's a lot of principles like, you know, policy changes take effect, you know, they have a lagging effect. So they take a couple of years to really take root and catch on. We know that there's a human side to organizational change. We know there's a technical side, so on and so forth. And then there's another group of scholars who write from a, rate, a perspective of um, anti-racism, social justice. And what I found in the academic uh, realm is that these two kinds of literatures, these two bodies of work didn't necessarily speak to one another at all. And so um, this school was an opportunity to really try to figure out what it looks like to apply principles of anti-racist and social justice leadership and combine those with the best of what we know from organizational improvement and leadership. And so that's the contribution that I hope that this book will make broadly to academia. But for practitioners and people who work in schools, my goal was really to provide an account of what it what is involved if you want to actually try to make your school a place that works for black and brown students. And so that was the goal uh, because I, before this book, didn't see any long, uh, any multi-year accounts of what that process actually entails. And so that's what I really wanted to capture in this book. What does your book teach us about listening? Um, I think that, you know, uh, it teaches us that listening is a really, really important skill to develop and that listening is, I mean, it's just super powerful. Um, it's difficult to convey, but I think that, um, it's really important for people in positions of power to listen. Um, so one of the things that I write about in the book is that um, the school leader, the principal, who in the book I call um, Elizabeth, um, 
was very well intentioned, very well meaning, but was not initially a very good listener. And so one of the things that my research team and I uh, encouraged her to do over the course of the project, which I can talk a little bit about why um, in a moment, but we encouraged her to start to listen to people more deeply. And one of the things that we asked all of the administrators, the people in positions of power to do is to sit in meetings and not say anything and just like listen deeply. Um, take notes, listen, be the last to talk, be the last to, to jump in and give other people the time to really um, talk, which will also give them the opportunities to really deeply listen. And I think that through listening and even my opportunity to listen to people in the school community talk over a, a pretty much a seven year period, um, just really helped me gain a lot of insights into what motivates people to behave in particular kind of ways, um, whether that's a fear of something, whether it's a hope or aspiration. And what I found is that by deeply listening, we can become more attuned to the kind of underlying emotions and aspirations that drive people's behaviors. And um, in this particular book, uh, that relates to their behaviors concerning how people um, either reinforce and enact racism or do things to counter and challenge racism. And so it was fascinating to have the opportunity to listen. But I think an important thing is listening, but in particular for people who are in positions of power to listen. There's one quote that I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on page 212. Uh, you write as follows. For black and brown students and for all students that, for that matter, school is the real world where they learn from their experiences, what is and is not possible, what is unjust and what is unfair. White girls who cheat should be given the opportunity to, re to retake tests. Why? Something must be wrong with the teaching. Black girls who fight at school should lose the opportunity to attend senior prom. Why? Something must be wrong with the girls. Starting with white wise is less effective than creating opportunities to learn by starting with why not a perennial black question. Can you elaborate on that quotation? Yeah, um, sure. What are, what are you trying to say with that insight? Yeah, so thanks for thanks for um, pulling out that piece. Um, it's the first time that somebody's asked me specifically about that. So there's a couple of parts in there that I wanna speak to. Um, first, I'll talk about my um, juxtaposition of how white girls are treated, how black girls are treated in this particular school community. Um, so earlier in the book, I write about um, a group of white girls who stole a test, made cop copies of it, stole the answers to a test, made copies of it, passed it around the school, got caught cheating. And their disciplinary response from the school was that the girls would have done this if they would have felt prepared to take the test. And so they put the responsibility onto the teachers. Um, there was also an incident a couple of years later where some black, a group of black girls got into a physical altercation to a fight. And the disciplinary response from the school was to uh, not allow them to go to prom. And so it's this punitive, we're gonna remove you. Whereas the disciplinary response for the white girls was really something that was redemptive. It, it, it assumed their innocence. It assumed that teachers had a responsibility um, to in both their behavior as well as in helping them, you know, recover or bounce back from, you know, the cheating, right? A cheating scandal. 
Whereas uh, the school community did not afford or extend that kind of grace or uh, benefit of the doubt to the black students. There was no conversation about whether um, teachers or any adults in the building for that matter could have or should have done something differently to help these girls avoid this particular confrontation. Um, and there was nothing, there was no effort at trying to um, engage in kind of like the why would they do this? Why are they behaving in this particular way? And so I wanted to hold that up because, you know, people in the school, many people in school were very critical of especially the cheating incident and, you know, argued that, you know, the white girls should have been in trouble. They should have gotten a consequence for engaging in that kind of behavior. And so I think that um, the other part of that question focuses on this idea of, uh, the wise. And so one of the things that I try to really focus on the book in the book is this idea of curiosity and inquiry and how educators and people who are administrators tend to be very and more curious about why these white girls cheated as opposed to um, why, you know, the black girls would be fighting um, and really addressing kind of like the root causes, the issues of why. And again, that's something that is a, a recurring refrain in the book is that I'm trying to get people to begin become curious about these issues of racial inequities and the different, different ways that uh, black students, white students and brown students are treated in the school. Um, another refrain that, and so that's why I have this kind of like this why place there. And that's something that I do throughout the book is try to ask readers to consider the why and give them a little snippet of how people in the school would have responded to that why. And so I think um, another thing is that I talk about this idea of why versus why not being a, why not being a black question and why being a white question. And this is another thing that I kind of weave throughout the book. And what I argue is that when people start to develop a particular kind of racial consciousness, is that they shift their questioning to not arguing about why a particular change or something should be done, but they begin to talk about and think about why not. And so the concrete example that I would like to give is one where I write in the book about Ethan, who is an administrator who uh, makes some changes to support black students. And people are asking him, why are you making these changes? And he felt the need to have to justify a lot of the kind of like things that he was doing to support black students. And in particular, why he was going above and beyond in providing supports and resources that he wasn't providing to white students. And he shifted his responses and questioning to why not? Why should I not support the student? Why should we, um, why should we not allow these girls to go to prom, right? There was a why not related to, um, yeah. And so that's kind of what I really try to point to in the book is the kinds of questions that we ask about particular incidents um, require or give us the opportunity to think about a kind of different reality and social order. And so I do a lot of this questioning. One of the key kind of themes in the book is to like be curious. Can you comment on the concepts of inviting proliferation and embedded proliferation. What's the sure. difference between these two concepts? Can you provide some examples? 
Yeah, sure. So when I write about the idea of proliferation, it's really a change concept that I use to convey the idea of equity practices, reforms, interactions that um, create a more equitable school um, and a more affirming learning experience for black and brown students being something that spreads throughout the school community. And so how I talk about this idea of spread is through this word and language of proliferation. And so the reason that um, I use these two distinctions of uh, embedded, embedding proliferation and inviting proliferation is that you can spread these practices through either embedding yourself in particular spaces and conversations and communities, or you can invite people into spaces and into communities. And so the inviting proliferation would be something like if we had a Black student union or a social justice course or a racial equity committee, and we invited people to participate in that committee. And by virtue of being invited to participate and be a part of this community, they start to pick up and adopt a lot of the practices, the ways of talking, the ways of being in interaction that reflect the value orientation and the commitments of this particular community. Embedding is different because embedding is about people who have a particular commitment to racial equity, positioning themselves in communities, in spaces, in classrooms, in groups that might not share the same affinities, but being in those spaces to model and to interact in a way that disrupts the kind of white normative way that people are you know, interacting with one another. And so in this particular school setting, um, proliferation was achieved both through inviting people to participate and try new things. For example, you know, um, instead of starting your classroom, uh, starting the beginning of the semester, beginning of your class with like, here's the set rules and sign this contract, a more equitable, racially equitable um, way to do that and restore the way to do that would be to engage the students in a conversation about what are the conditions and what are the practices that are required to make this a learning environment that's going to benefit everybody, um, including what are the things that you all need from me as a teacher. That's a different approach than the teacher having a set of rules that they have had for you know 10 years. The students come in, here's the rules, here's what you got to do. Those are two different approaches. So some teachers will learn how to begin to do the more com community cooperative approach to developing commitments by visiting and participating in uh, other people's, seeing other people's practices. So they were invited. And then in other instances, someone might have been uh, strategically placed with the group and then they were facilitated and they had the experience of forming like a kind of group commitments. And so that would have been something, would be an example of someone going to another group and embedding themselves in a community to kind of model what that process actually looks like. And so those were the two ways, the two primary ways that I saw racial equity practices uh, be modeled and spread throughout the school community. How are race conscious inquiry methods different from race neutral methods? Yeah, thank you. So um, this is something that I write about in chapter um, in a chapter in the book called uh, Race Conscious uh, Inquiry, uh, which is a, a form of leadership. So. If we think about the idea of continuous improvement and, uh, you know, cycles, and most educators think about their cycles in very simple terms, like, you know, there's a problem, I plan to address the problem by choosing a strategy, 
I try to address the strategy. I mean, I try to address that problem by implementing strategies and then I test to see, did it work, right? So that's the kind of like cycle of, in terms of a, a, a inquiry cycle. There's a problem, you figure out what the problem might be. You identify some ways to address the problem. You implement the strategies that you've identified and then you determine whether they worked or not and then you start all over. A race conscious inquiry cycle is different because it focuses on understand prob understanding problems as problems of racism, right? Um, so there's this assumption that if you're engaging in a race-conscious inquiry cycle, that there's something about this particular problem and how this particular problem is playing out, how this particular problem is being experienced that is racialized and that has something to do with race and racism. So if you go into a problem assuming that there's something about race and racism that is a central part of the problem, that means that you will identify strategies that are conscious and aware that race is possibly a part of the problem that you, or racism is part of the problem that you should be addressing when trying to um, you know, solve whatever this particular problem is. And so that's the kind of main difference because your strategies then would be like, um, we have to also address racism. And so I'll give you a, a concrete example. Let's assume, for example, that um, there's a problem with how students are getting feedback, right? Let's say the teachers give students feedback, um, but they say they do, they say, you know, students aren't, students aren't improving on their writing. And so I'm assuming there's some kind of problem with how we're giving feedback. So a race neutral, a neutral kind of continuous improvement approach would assume that you don't have to think about the racial interaction associated with giving feedback. So let's say, for example, the teacher is white and there's, you know, five white students and five black students in a classroom. And that you can assume that if you can give feedback in a particular kind of technical way, you know, I'm going to mark through with red ink and I'm going to give them a paragraph of feedback and I'm going to tell them what they can do better. A race neutral approach would not assume that racism or race matters in that interaction at all. And so they would try to be more uniform and say, we're going to give um, feedback in a way that's going to be the same for all of the students. Um, and that feedback could be helpful or not. A race conscious approach assumes that if there are five black students and five white students, and if the teacher is white or if the teacher is black, that the racial interaction that the students have, their past histories with other white teachers or black teachers, their past histories or, or their home lives and what their communities and their cultural affinity groups say about the amount of trust or weight we should give to the feedback that, for example, a white person gives a black person or that a black person gives a white person. All of these things, if you're race conscious, factor into the feedback experience. And so with that in mind, you would also want to be thinking about in your inquiry process, what is the, um, what should we be thinking about? How can we improve this feedback practice in a way that accounts for the very real possibility that a black student might not receive feedback from a white person in the same way that they would feel receive feedback from a black person and vice versa. And so your strategies would be different the way that you go about solving that problem and getting to the end goal of students being able to really do better in terms of correcting their work requires a certain level of race consciousness. 
And so what that would mean then is that I need to go into a conversation and say like, look, part of my strategy would be like, look, I'm a black person. I do this in my college classrooms. I'm a black person. The vast majority of white people in this country have never had a black person evaluate their, their schoolwork. It's just a, you know, and so by the time you get to me, you're an adult. You've had white people tell you that you're good. You've also had white people tell you that, you know, you've done a good job. You've had to tell them that you haven't done a good job and that you need to improve. Hearing that from a black person is going to be a potentially different experience for you. I just want to name that. Um, and I want to reckon, I want you to recognize that in a white supremacist world, getting feedback from a black person is a very different and potentially disorienting experience. But there's something of value that I can offer you that's going to help you be a better writer, to be a better thinker, so on and so forth. So that's just an example of a, uh, what a race conscious inquiry cycle is and how it actually differs from one that is more kind of just race neutral and doesn't take racism and people's racialized experiences into consideration. Can you describe the physical and social geography of Central Water High School? Sure. So um, Central Waters, uh, it changed. Actually, the, 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 physical and, the physical and social geography changed over time. Uh, even in the seven years that I was involved. But I'll go back a little bit further. Um, this, in the past, was a kind of not quite a pretty rural community. Um, you would have small pocket kind of like, uh, you know, communities and neighborhoods, um, small houses, well manicured lawns, and then you have a field with cows and rolling hills, and then you have another small kind of like, uh, you know, neighborhood development. The school, the community used to have one kind of main street with like one light. So very small kind of small town feel. Fast forward to 2020 when I was writing the book and it was a very different place. And I talk about in the introduction how now we had multiple lights, there was traffic, all of the, many of those fields were now housing developments and not only single homes, but condos and apartment complexes, um, multiple grocery stores, you know, entertainment, you know, uh, bars. So the town developed pretty rapidly. Socially, there was a lot of um, geographic um, segregation and isolation for particular communities. Um, Central Waters was in the past predominantly white. And what brought about a lot of these changes was the relocation of uh, a major um, manufacturer locating their headquarters uh, in this town. And um, that, that brought in a lot of new workers, a lot of Latinx folks, um, a lot, large number of immigrants, uh, and as well as Black folks um, coming to this community for the job opportunities that um, it provided. Um, and so many of the uh, Latinx and Black communities lived out in the outskirts of this kind of central area of Central Waters, and the central area still remained you know, a white neighborhood, white community. Um, I would say how I like to describe it is that like this school community where Central Waters is located is, you know, it's middle America, small town, um, growing small town, middle America is how I would describe it, um, where people have driveways, you know, well manicured lawns, lawns, American flags, 
the young people work at the fast food restaurants, right? They work, they're bagging groceries. You know, young people enter into kind of like those first jobs at, you know, uh, in high school. Uh, many of the white children in particular have a car by the time they go to high school and they drive, drive their cars. Black and brown students, not so much. They're riding buses, so on and so forth. So that's, um, it's a very typical and familiar place um, that would probably feel very familiar to people who have experiences in more suburban-like settings throughout the United States. What is unique about Central Waters High School as a high school relative to peer schools in the country and region? And what is commonplace about Central Waters High School that can be compared to other institutions? Yeah, so I'll start with some of the commonalities first. Um, some of the commonalities is that it uh, is a school that is interesting in its very similar kind of like demographics um, to many other schools. And so, like I said, um, by the time I left, it's about 30% students of color. Um, white students comprise the majority of the school population, followed by Latinx students, followed by Black students, which is a similar kind of trend what we see in um, the demographics of you know, the United States. Um, lots of English language learners. Um, and you know, it was your kind of like typical comprehensive high school. Um, it's a place that has AP classes, college track, general track, special education, um, English language learning, you know, football team, soccer team, cheerleading team uh, that's mostly comprised of white girls, all those sorts of things. Student council mostly comprised of white students, yearbook comprised mostly of white students. And then um, in time, they created, you know, a black student union, a Latino student union, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so in many ways, a very typical school, a very typical kind of school community. Um, the differences, I would say, were um, the, well, and, I, and I, I should also add these things. A school community also has many of the same problems of racism that exist in schools throughout the entire country. Um, and when I say racism, in the book, I write a lot about like what I call mundane uh, racism. And, you know, this is the everyday kind of things that kind of chip away, um, that make people of color extremely frustrated um, and chip away at the sense of their possibility um, and sense of potential. And so those were the kind of things that happened in the school. And that could be, you know, a lack of reflection of uh, a culturally responsive curriculum, teachers who don't look like them, so on and so forth. So a very, I would characterize it as a very typical school, including the disparities that existed in terms of underrepresentation in college and advanced placement for students of color, overrepresentation in special education, racial achievement gaps, racial opportunity gaps, so on and so forth. Where the school community was different was, I would argue, in its eventual willingness to try to do something to disrupt all of the kind of typical patterns that I've just described. Um, one of them, as I mentioned, was that they eventually did create um, affinity groups for students of color, Black Student Union, Latinx, Latino Student Union, 
And then they had an overall union called the Voice Student Voice Union, which combined LGBTQI organization, the Black organizations, the Sisters Supporting Sisters organization, the Brothers Supporting Brothers organizations, all into one large um, body of students that uh, continually advocated for improvements in the school. So I would say that it's, it was mostly distinct because there was a level of willingness to try to do something different to improve the school. Once this predominantly white community, and when I'm saying community, I'm talking about the educators who work at the school, not parents, but the educators who worked at the school and the educators who, the administrators who were in the district knew there was a need to change. And so I would say one of the distinctions and differences was the acknowledgement of the need to change, but also the commitment of educators in this particular school to be open to trying to do something different than what they have been doing in years past, which they knew and acknowledged was not supporting the increasing number of Black and Brown students that were members of their school community. On page 104, you refer to the practice of healing rocks. What is this practice and can you explain it to us? Sure. What was the practice of the climate box into which people put their concerns on sheets of paper and drop them in? What were the reactions that were evoked? Yeah, sure. So both of these things were um, efforts to really get the communication flowing and to create the conditions where people could receive and give uh, information, feedback, criticisms, critiques, praise, forgiveness in ways that uh, were not happening before. And so the healing rocks and the climate box were both tools that compel people to communicate feelings, thoughts, and ideas that they otherwise would not have. And when I say feelings, thoughts, and ideas, I'm speaking to both positive as well as negative things that, you know, just weren't spoken out loud or just shared within the school community. And because they weren't shared, actually stifled the ability of the school community to have the information and that, that was required to help everybody, you know, move forward and improve. So the, the Healing Rocks was something that I learned when I was a camper as a child growing up. I used to go to summer camp and we used to have this you know, these rocks. And at the camp, at the beginning of camp, they would introduce these rocks and they say, if somebody does something nice for you, if somebody, um, you know, if you feel like you need to have a conversation with somebody or something, we want to pass, you pass this rock to that person. And so there was this practice that, you know, during this camp, during this week at camp, somebody did something nice, X, Y, Z, you pass the rock and then we would have at the, at the dinner time, somebody would share, um, you know, who had the rock and how they got the rock, what the conversation was, how they actually received the rock. And so this is a practice that I introduced because I thought it would work well in this, this school community. And I kind of expanded um, the use of it to really focus on healing, um, having difficult conversations, but also conversations of appreciation um, that people just weren't having in the school community. And the rock was a... a something that you could put in your hand to remind you and tell you and compel you to have those conversations. And so how it worked was, is that you have the rock, you get the rock, and for 48 hours, you can only keep the rock for 48 hours. You have to pass the rock to somebody within 48 hours. 
And you could pass it to them through gratitude or appreciation. Or if it's someone that you felt like you maybe had some kind of unresolved conflict with, you could take the rock to them and just acknowledge that conflict and invite the opportunity for a conversation at some point. And so what we asked is that if you get this rock, don't hold the rock more than 48 hours. And so it got passed throughout the school community. And we introduced like about three to five, three, three or so rocks, and then maybe a few more rocks. And it really created an opportunity for people to go throughout the community and just talk with people who they otherwise wouldn't have. And then we also invited people to share if they were willing, um, who had the rock and, you know, how they got it, what the conversation was, which model that it's okay to have conversations. It's okay to apologize. It's okay to um, communicate things that might be uncomfortable within the particular kind of like professional context that, you know, people work within in schools. The climate box was also a communication tool. And the climate box was really intended to give the administration feedback um, and opportunities to really understand how staff and faculty were feeling about different issues in the school. And it could be whatever it was. So we basically put this box in the copy room where people would come and copy and they could write a note on it. It could be totally anonymous or you could put your name on it. It could be, um, I felt disrespected in the meeting today. I'm gonna put this in the box or um, I'm really pleased with how things are going. And you can put that in the box and the administrative team would look at this information to get a sense of kind of like what people were expressing and have an opportunity to respond to it. One of the problems is that oftentimes if somebody says, you know, I didn't like what happened, they keep it to themselves or they share other people and it never gets back to the administration until it's built to a point of frustration. So the goal was to get it out quick in a way that is uh, not threatening to the person who wants to deliver the message. They put it in the box and it gives administrators the opportunities to respond to it. What eventually happened is that there became a reduced need for the box because the administration got frustrated by the comments were there, comments that were there and not being able to respond directly to who made the comments and who did that sort of thing. And so what they did is they started to cultivate a process where they had like office hours, they had more regular communication. And this is going back to that first question you asked me, they started to really listen to people as opposed to just read, because that was a way of kind of listening. But then they started to really just say, we're going to listen to everybody. So the administrators had open uh, office hours. They scheduled one-on-ones with every person in the school. So they created a calendar to be able to do that at least two times per year, beginning of the year and then midway through the year. Um, and so they began to do these things that really helped them listen. And as I mentioned early on, that listening in particular for people who are in positions of power was really, really important because it allowed them to have the information and understanding that they needed to understand how to support people in making a school a more uh, affirming environment for black and brown students. Another quote that I'd like to ask you about is the following. It's on page 219. You write the anti-intellectual nature of white supremacy keeps the focus of justice and anti-racist work bound primarily to emotions, but racial learning is also intellectual work that benefits from practice in the same way any other learning does. 
an intellectual understanding that racial harm is inflicted through structural violence is critical. When moved beyond individualization, the exploration of harm can become a matter of intellectual engagement and learning that lends to racial solidarity. Can you elaborate on that passage for us? Yeah, sure. So um, this is really a passage where I am in the, in the context of this particular um, passage where I write this passage, I'm really trying to really write about the importance of understanding white supremacy as an ideology. Um, and this is intellectual work, right? And what I try to make a clear distinction of is that a lot of times the approach to addressing racism is to try to make people feel good, feel better, which is really important. That's, that's, that's important too. Um, but really understanding how racism works in a society, how white supremacy, how white supremacy upholds racism requires a level of intellectual engagement. So this is a mind thing that requires reading, that requires study, that requires intellectual conversation. It requires, for example, using the word white supremacy. It requires understanding the distinction between white supremacy as ideology and racism as something that is structured through the enactment of white supremacist ideology. So these are all deeply kind of like intellectual things that adults and young people, for, for that matter, have the capacity to address and deal with on an intellectual level. It's not to say that um, understanding the underlying emotions of how racism is experienced um, isn't important, but it's to really, I'm hoping that this book, one of the things that I hope that this book does is that it brings a new set of intellectual tools to the conversation about how to make organizations and schools racially just. Um, and so I really try to, uh, you know, really think about how language and study and learning can help us have a different kind of understanding, conversation, and solidarity because it gives us a language and understanding to communicate with one another. And so I think one of the mistakes of how people engage in processes that try to create a more racially just kind of like school systems is that there becomes this intense prioritization of managing and dealing with and accounting for the emotional um, dimensions of racial equity work as opposed it, that becomes prioritized over the intellectual um, necessities that are required to engage in racial equity work. And so that's what I really try to speak to there. Um, just to say that, like, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's intellectual work, right? Um, and just like, you know, I think educators, teachers are some of the most well-read people. They read a lot. Um, they're super thoughtful. Um, they're intellectuals. And so one of the arguments that I'm making here in this passage is that we would benefit from treating people who work in schools as intellectuals and as smart people who can read about and talk about white supremacy as opposed to, for example, just white privilege. Like white supremacy is a powerful intellectual concept and idea that helps us understand world history since, you know, the 1400s. 
if you don't understand white supremacy and white white supremacist ideology, it's very difficult to have an intellectual grasp on the current reality that we live in. And it's almost impossible to understand how to change the reality that we live in. And so really that piece is really to try to make the case and make the argument that we need to take seriously the intellectual nature of racial equity reform and work. What do you mean by the term curated white discomfort? What is its relevance to thinking about problems in education policy? And what is the significance of the term curated? Yeah. So this is very closely related to uh, the question that I just responded to about like the intellectual nature of um, anti-racist work. And so there is, as I mentioned, a kind of emotional um, part or component of the work um, that can't be and shouldn't be denied. And so the idea of curated white race, racial discomfort speaks to the need for white people to experience uh, and be and remain at the threshold of their discomfort so that they're continually learning. Um, learning is, is uncomfortable. Learning can be emotional, um, but it's possible. And this is to, the idea of curated white racial discomfort is a way of naming the kinds of professional learning opportunities that white people need that accounts for the emotions that they experience when learning about issues of race and racism. The difference between white people learning about racism and black and brown people, specifically black people's learning about racism, is that black people start to learn about racism at a very young age, in their formative years, most often, both through experience as well as through depending on the community and the household that you know black children are part of, they get direct instruction from their parents and community about issues of race and racism, whether that direct instruction is about interacting with police or that direct instruction might be like, look, these white teachers might not care about you the way you want them to. That's the reality that we live with. So there's this kind of direct instruction that black children and black people experience at younger ages. And a lot of times white people don't get that kind of education. They can go through life without having to experience the discomfort emotionally or the intellectual dissonance associated with having to come to terms with the fact that this we live in a white supremacist world. If white people get it at all, they don't get it typically until college, right? And even when they get it in college, it might be uh, in a class or two, you know, if they have to take an ethnic studies or a black studies course. It doesn't have to be something that's a part of their everyday reality that shapes how they move through the world. And so by the time they get to a point, a school community, a group of educators gets to a point of wanting to engage in this work for the purposes of improving a school community, um, they're going to be having to experience the range of emotions and cognitive dissonance that Black students and Black people in that same building might have been grappling with learning and understanding since they were five, six, seven years old, um, and that they certainly got by the time they were teenagers, informally, as well as probably formally, depending on their, their college education. And so the curated piece is to make sure that white people get access to the kind of learning that black people and oftentimes brown people have had access to for multiple years. And so the curated piece is to make sure 
that the experience of learning isn't damaging in the way or harmful in a way that it can be and that it often is when black and brown people have to have these experiences where like it's jarring, right? You, you learn about, you learn that police aren't your friend through an incident, which can be jarring, which is, can be traumatic. Um, that's not the way that, you know, black people should have to learn that, right? But it's the reality of how black people have to learn it. And so the idea of creating curated experiences, so there's not this kind of discomfort that harms, but that it's a discomfort that understands that there's going to be a lot of um, dissonance, a lot of discomfort, um, but that the challenges of going through that discomfort will make you more emotionally attuned as well as intellectually prepared to engage in the kind of actions and practice changes that are required to make the school community better. So that's the curated piece, is to curate it so that there's a lot of risk that people understand that there's a tremendous amount of risk associated with racial learning and developing racial literacies, and in particular, changing your racial practices, but that is a necessary uh, part of the learning, but that many, many white people have not gotten access to those kinds of learning opportunities until, you know, they're 30 years old doing a professional development in their school. Another quote that I'd like to ask you about is on page 103. Um, you write the following, when people fight, there is always an underlying reason. Teachers fought administration because they did not feel heard, listened to, or valued as colleagues. They fought back because they did not see the changes they so desperately wanted from black and brown students. They didn't feel safe, so they fought. They leaked information to parents who shared their beliefs. They created a closed Facebook site to share opinions stemmed from a fear of retribution from the administration, or worse, being called racist. Can you say more about what you're describing in this passage? Yeah, sure. So one of the things I should mention generally about the book is for each book, I tried to weave a metaphor throughout. So there was one chapter where I talked about corners, one where I talked about running races. In this particular chapter, I write about the idea of courageously confrontational culture of a school. Um, and the metaphor that I weave throughout is the idea of fights and the importance and the need and the reasons why people fight. And so this particular passage um, speaks to, again, our need to continually ask why, right? And so again, this is something that we throughout the book, we ask why, for example, um, and try to understand the why and get to the roots of, you know, like a fist fight, for example. Um, and people are always curious, like, you know, we don't, why, we don't know why, this physical violence happens, but there's all these other kinds of things that happen to people um, that put up their guards and make them fight for particular reasons. And so basically what I'm conveying in this is that um, it's really trying to convey an understanding of why the teachers uh, were kind of, many teachers, not all of them, were like battle, battle ready, right? And fight mode and really just trying to demonstrate that they were fighting too and really trying to name the ways that they fight it fought even if it wasn't physical fighting 
that they still were engaged in fighting and that fighting is a reasonable, rational, understandable response when people are not having their needs met, when people feel threatened, so on and so forth. And so what I was attempting to do with this particular passage is to relate the idea, the, the idea that people will fight when they feel it's necessary. People will not fight when they don't feel it's necessary, when they feel like they belong, they feel welcome, they feel safe, supported, so on and so forth. People don't fight. Um, and really try to put up a mirror to, in particular, white people who have a very um, harsh critique of the manifestations of how fighting materializes in many communities, white, white communities too, but in this particular school setting, black students fights and how um, I can point right back or put the mirror in front of white people and say, you all fight too, right? Um, you all have different forms of power that you're using to fight. Students are using the forms of power that they have to fight. The question that we should be asking is why are people fighting? And so that's what I really was trying to convey um, in this particular passage, in this particular overall chapter that focuses on courageous confrontation. Can you explain the concept and term courageous confrontation for us that you just alluded to? Uh, what does the term mean? What are some examples? What are some guidelines to engaging in it? What are some of the best practices of courageous confrontation? Yeah. So courageous confrontation, to appreciate and understand it, requires understanding of other uh, ways that organizations behave. So in this chapter, I write about courageous confrontation as an alternative and courageously confrontational culture as an alternative to a collegial culture and to a congenial culture. So I'll start with congenial and then I'll back my way into courageously confrontational culture because having these distinctions is, is helpful. So a congenial culture is the kind of place where people play nice to get along. These are the kind of school communities where people will go into a meeting, they'll sit in a meeting, they'll hear something that they don't like, somebody will say something or do something or propose something they don't agree with, they'll roll their eyes, they might pass a note to somebody else, they'll leave the meeting and they'll talk about the person who put forth the idea. They'll talk bad about the idea, they'll do this in the parking lot, they'll do it through text. Such and such in the meeting is crazy. That's a kind of congenial culture. A collegial culture is a place where people will um, push one another, but only to a certain point and in a race neutral way. And so a congenial culture is the kind of culture in an organization or within a group of people where folks will say, um, you know, I'm just going to make this slight recommendation about X, Y, and Z, take it or leave it. A courageously confrontational culture is a different kind of culture because um, as opposed to sitting in the meeting and not saying anything and then going outside of the meeting to talk and gossip and critique and criticize, and also different from sitting in the meeting and saying, well, here's what I think, right? Sharing that a courageously confrontational culture takes an additional pivot and says, here's what I think, here's what I think should be done. Here's what I believe. Here's why. Here's how I think this problem can be remedied. Here's why remedying the problem in this particular way helps us address the racism that students and adults in this building are experiencing. 
And so when we think about the idea of courageous confrontation, it's really something that is part of the black tradition in the United States. We step out, we protest, we engage in direct action. We say, this is what should be done. We make demands, we do all of those things. Courageous confrontation is a way of bringing that spirit of directly confronting issues of injustice, issues of inequity head on and showing up to say, here's what the problem is, here's how it can be remedied and here's why you should do it. And we're gonna hold you to doing it. That's a more courageously confrontational approach. So how that looks in a school is it looks like um, moving from, again, saying, here's what I think the issue is, or here's what you can do, to here's what you should do, and kind of taking a more stronger position. It also means that if I'm in that um, congenial school culture and somebody goes into, uh, leaves a meeting and says, hey, you know, well, um, this particular part of the meeting upset me. And I'm in a school where we're engaged in courageously confrontational organizational practices. I'll say, I hear that. I agree. I kind of felt the same way. We should go talk to the person who made the recommendation or the comment about what they said. Should I facilitate that process? Or, do, or can, I, can I connect you all to to talk about it? Or should I open up the conversation? And so there's this process of facilitating and bringing that confrontation, that conflict, that difference, that opinion, that uh, want to do something different directly to the person who it needs to be addressed to. And not only to that person, but to the idea that they have. So one of the key principles is to really focus on challenging people's ideas, challenging people's um, practices, not necessarily attacking or confronting the person, you know, like, I don't like you. Instead, it's your idea, the ideas that you're bringing forward, while I understand where they're coming from, are problematic for these reasons. And so it's a different kind of confrontation. And I lay out some principles of how to engage in it and provide examples in the book of what that actually looks like. The, there are some personal stories that you tell it, that you relate in the book. And I was wondering if I could ask you to elaborate on some of them. Sure. Um, one of them is the story of Dante in chapter four. Mm -hmm. Why is Dante's trauma noteworthy? What is unique about Dante's experience vis-a-vis -vis other students at Central Waters High School? And what is common to others' experiences? Yeah, so I put Dante into the book because Dante in this particular school community represented a student who was very difficult for people to figure out how to relate to Dante in a way that could bring down his physical, um, in many, many times, his physical aggression, punching lockers. So, um, so he was a physically um, aggressive, verbally assertive black male um, who, for lack of a better word, was disruptive to the normal kind of everyday way that things happened at school. Um, I wanted to put him in the book because I think that there's a lot of school communities that have Dante's and people might even know a little bit of Dante's backstory. Um, and so I just wanted to just put Dante in there to just say that Dante's exist. Um, and Dante might not be male, might not be black, but Dante's exist in a lot of different schools. 
Um, what's unique about Dante is that the typical way that people want to address and deal with Dante is through punitive measures. They want Dante out of the school. Dante is the kind of person that he would just like, we don't know what we, more we can do. We've tried everything. And in this particular case, Dante was having conflict with the school uh, resource officer, the school security officer. Dante didn't like police. Um, and Dante had something smart to say. He said things under his breath. The police officer was upset about it. Um, and so the administration worked with Dante and got Dante to actually stop antagonizing uh, and talking under his breath to the police officer. Um, the interesting aspect of this is that the police officer thought that Dante stopping, that the administration's ability to stop Dante's behavior was not enough. And that he wanted Dante to be punished further for the actions that he was engaged in, despite the fact that the administration was able to get Dante to see how his behaviors were problematic and ultimately to stop those behaviors. And so I thought this was an interesting story because it shows how um, a kind of law enforcement policing mentality uh, can come into conflict with a school community that's committed to a restorative, um, more kind of counseling, restorative approach to helping students change their behaviors. At the end of the day, the behavior changed. The administration felt like the behavior has stopped. That's a win. The win for someone in law enforcement who brings a mentality of punishment and consequence into their you know, professional life and way of being is that this person deserves to be punished. They need to be kicked out. They need to be X, Y, Z. Um, whereas the more restorative approach was Dante understood his behaviors, how they impacted this person, apologized and stopped the behavior. Um, and so really this example of Dante was an opportunity in the book to pressure test for lack of a better word, the idea that students deserve grace and opportunities to change their behaviors without receiving and being treated in punitive ways. Um, and people say that all the time. That's easy to do with a student that doesn't get in trouble much, right? Who, you know, is not really disruptive or is not physically aggressive. Um, or it doesn't threaten people. And it's a different thing to extend that kind of grace to a student like Dante, who is all of those things or who was all of those things. Can you tell us about Carla? What is your signif what is significance about your conversation with her? Can you relate the story of her experience as it is reported in chapter four? Yeah, so Carla was a person who was, I would say like one of the, racial equity and cultural relevance kind of like champion. She had great relationships with students, great person. Um, and I had a conversation with her when the school was preparing to hire and they were making hires and they specifically were like, we want, we need to, and we want to hire black people and people of color. Um, and my conversation with Carla was about her reaction to that and her disapproval of it. And, um, she was a person who I was surprised and who I thought would have welcomed, um, you know, a kind of more targeted, focused approach to hiring, and she didn't. And so the conversation was about really helping her to think through um, and explore, and for me to think through and explore why she felt one way about 
in this particular instance, hiring black people. Um, and what my experiences and, you know, ideas and thoughts were about hiring black people, they were different. Um, uh, I saw the merit in the process and she didn't. Um, I saw merit in the need to privilege and prioritize hiring black people. And in theory she did, but in practice, when it came down to it's actually going to happen this way, um, she couldn't appreciate it until after that conversation. Um, and so this particular conversation really um, focused on the ideas of meritocracy and merit and critiquing the idea of meritocracy as uh, ideology that holds up white supremacy and racism. And so that's why it was really, uh, that's why it was a really important conversation. And I will, I don't want to, yeah. And I will say that uh, Carla had a change of mind related to hiring. And, you know, I convey later in the book what the impact of her changing her mind actually was on the school's ability to make it a more affirming place for black and brown students. Can you tell us about Camille and Camille's mother? Why are they noteworthy? Can you describe the importance of the perspectives that they shared? Yeah, so I included Camille and Camille's mother in the book um, because this represented an example of where even within um, the Black community, within Black people, there's a range of different experiences and perspectives. Camille was a high school student who was critical of other Black students. She showed up to a board meeting to express her disapproval of how black students behave, interacted, um, how they were in the school space. And Camille's mother disagreed with her, but um, you know, let her come, brought her to the board meeting. And it was an instance where uh, you know, I disagreed with Camille, but I also appreciated Camille's willingness to exercise um, her you know, her voice as a young person to show up and share her thoughts. And so I thought that this particular um, vignette in the story was important because it conveyed the range of differences uh, that Black people uh, bring to and the pr different perspectives that Black people bring to the work and the process of racial equity, um, but also to demonstrate again is understanding that there is a intellectual um, level, there's a level of intellectual engagement that's required to really understand and for Camille to really understand why some of her perspectives were and are problematic. That comes with intellectual growth um, to, that allows the intellectual engagement that allows people to understand their experience. And Camille was a teenager, you know, 15 year old, um, doesn't have the same experience and has not had the same kind of intellectual op opportunities to engage intellectually around race and racism. And so therefore would understandably hold many of the ideas and opinions that she had that her mother staunchly disagreed with and that I disagreed with as well. It also demonstrates how we can hold, hold one another and be gracious to one another because you know, her mother still loves her. I was still proud of her, but I disagreed. So I wanted to demonstrate the complexity of what that entails for Black people in particular. What were the causes and consequences of the fights that took place in the 2016-2017 school year? How were they addressed? 
Yeah. So, yeah, that year, it was kind of difficult to explain the causes, uh, which is a um, became something. There was a lot of things that were difficult to explain. What we believe is and what the narrative was, is that there were conflicts that were happening out in the community, which is, again, why it was difficult to explain. But there were things that were happening in the community that were spilling over into the school, um, things that were happening mostly amongst black students. And even amongst, in this particular year, <clears throat> students who had never had any kind of conflicts or problem at school at all were like getting into physical fights. Um, so those, the consequences of that was that people felt that they were, uh, the school was not making progress and was backsliding. The feelings of inadequacy, feelings uh, amongst the staff to make sure that the environment was safe for students um, kind of creep back in, frustrations creep back in, you know, we're putting forth effort, we're trying. So a lot of those fights um, had the consequence of reestablishing and creating the conditions where a lot of old feelings about problems with Black students in particular kind of like reemerging. Understanding though, but I think the difference was is that, that at, by this point there was an understanding there wasn't necessarily the problems that existed were beyond just like students, right? That they were, these problems were grounded in the conditions that existed in communities. I would say a lot of it was grounded in the political upheaval that was occurring 2016, 2017 with the Trump administration. So there was these broader kind of like social anxieties and the ways that communities of color in particular experience the Trump uh, campaign and eventual victory. Um, and so this kind of anxiety that existed within communities about the political and social climate of our country really kind of like manifesting in physical violence. Um, and so those are some of the kind of like root things that were happening that I didn't write extensively about in the book, but that were at play to help people in the school community um, understand and try to make sense of what was happening with these fights at the school. Um, the immediate kind of consequences that, you know, students were suspended, um, that they had to start taking the physical aggression and physical violence more seriously and started to have to, it started to reinstate some of the policies related to suspensions uh, that they had really tried to move away from in an effort to make the school a more restorative environment. Uh, there's another quotation I'd like to ask you about on pages 204 and 205. You write the following. Tragically, racial breakthroughs are often fleeting, duly undermined by our co collective inability to see them at white supremacy's insistent and ongoing self-reinvention. First, the myriad practices, policies, organizational conditions, and experiences that affirm Black and Brown students, their racial knowledge, contributions and experiences are invisibilized. Educators erase breakthroughs that affirm black and brown students before. People who experience them recognize, honor, and testify of their existence. Thus, breakthroughs are not available for people to learn from or carry forward. Breakthroughs are not available for... Breakthroughs threaten the existent, the, ex, the existing racial order, Second, because racial breakthroughs threaten a white supremacist racial order, they are 
always subject to racial setbacks. Racial setbacks neutralize by resetting people's racial interactions, thinking and behaviors to prior racial patterns and configurations. Unless a school continually sets itself up, builds up its capacity for racial equity change to accelerate and proliferate racial breakthroughs, erasure and guaranteed racial setbacks will continually stunt its racial equity efforts and erase any successes it may achieve. Can you say more about um, your observation in this passage? Yeah, sure. So this is a passage that comes from the final chapter where I'm really wrestling with the question of how do you know you're making progress, right? How, how can we understand whether a school is making progress on racial equity or not? Um, and so the concept that I use to explore that question of are we making progress, or are we not, is the idea of racial breakthroughs. And what I argue is that because we don't have the intellectual, we don't have the, which I try to introduce in the book through the language of racial breakthroughs, but racial breakthroughs offers the intellectual, um, it's an intellectual resource, it's language that names particular kinds of changes that are often invisible, briefly recognized, so on and so forth. And so what I argue is that if, a breakthrough does happen. So, for example, in a science class, you know, I write about in the book, a science class where black students are really into science. They're learning. They um, are grasping very difficult, high level concepts. They're becoming the scientists that they have always had the potential to be through engagement in their science class. And a lot of times we don't recognize that as a breakthrough because it breaks the pattern that in most many schools, students don't gain access to the kind of science learning that give them a kind of a science kind of identity, right? Where they feel like they're doing science, being scientists, thinking about, you know, disciplinary knowledge, right? You know, they're feeling like a biologist who going to this class. That's not common. So it's a breakthrough because it breaks a racial pattern of black students not having the opportunity to have that experience and that, that feeling and that kind of learning. And the experience that, that stems from a particular kind of access and opportunity to learning. And so breakthroughs are powerful, but too often those students, let's say it was, for example, three students who had that experience. If we don't recognize that as a breakthrough, it doesn't give us the opportunity to begin to inquire about how did this happen? What did the teacher do? What did parents do? What did the students do? What can we learn from these particular, you know, three students, for example, who have engaged in a kind of learning and interaction with their teacher and with this content that radically breaks from what traditionally happens in the school community? And so what I argue is that if we don't understand and know breakthroughs when we see them, we can't learn from them. And if we can't learn from them, it's very difficult to proliferate uh, and replicate the racial breakthroughs that we see. So those three students become 30 students, become 300 students because we understand a practice of how that particular breakthrough was achieved. What I argue is that without having, without being attuned to 
and naming and thinking and staying put to understand these breakthroughs, the typical way of doing business is going to erase them. And we could go three years later and we don't even remember. The teacher might remember and those students might have graduated, but the school community doesn't understand or know the stories and the successes and the breakthroughs that those three students achieved. Um, and so it becomes lost. And then you go back to a broader kind of pattern of narrative and narrative of black students, for example, engaging in kind of science learning in a way that where they just want to pass the test and move forward, right? They're happy with the B or either they're happy with the A, but they don't think of, you know, our science is not really for me and that sort of thing. Um, and so that would be an example of a breakthrough and why it's important. It's an important concept to really understand. It's something I hope people will gravitate towards as they read the book and start to ask, you know, what are the breakthroughs that are happening in our school community? Can you describe the dialogue between Jacob, Juliet, and Jasper? Why is it significant? So the dialogue with uh, Jacob, Juliet, and Jasper was a dialogue that happened when we conducted focus groups with students to ask them about different kinds of experiences of you know, race and racism within their school community. And I think the important thing about this and why it's included in the book is that it clearly demonstrates that like students, number one, in general, know what's going on with race and racism. <laughs> you know, they're not clueless by any means. And, and, and white students know too, right? So there's people in the building where as you have adults who would deny that, um, you know, there's problems or not see the problems, the students themselves experience them and see the problems, Black students as well as uh, white students. And they would literally say, you know, here's how we're treated differently. If you're Black at this school and you do A, this is what happens. If you're white at this school and you do A, this is what happens. What happens to Black students is not fair because white students do the same thing and they don't get the same consequences or they don't get the same opportunities. And so, you know, it was not fascinating necessarily. It was, it was, it was troubling that white students would talk about things in a very more, much more matter of fact way than often, than many of the adults, not all, but many of the adults would actually talk about um, themselves. There is a table I'd be curious to ask you about and a figure. Uh, there's figure 1.1 on page 38 and table 1.1 on page 40. What do they illustrate? What evidence is depicted? Yeah. So figure 1.1 is a figure that has, um, well, let me just give the backdrop for it. It's, a, it's actually an artifact. Um, so part of what I collected as part of the research projects were artifacts that leaders, teachers, students created over the duration of the project. And this was a artifact that came from a lesson that students created to address the use of the N-word in their school community. It was a word that people would use, you know, when I came and they were, you know, people just used the N-word. Some black people, some white people would use it. And students uh, decided to develop a lesson plan that was implemented throughout the entire school, both with adults first, 
and then with students to address the use and what they will argue is overuse and misuse of the N-word in their school. So um, it came about as a result of students being in a social justice class and the social justice leadership course requires students to engage and complete a course project addressing a particular issue of racism or injustice within their school community. And this particular group of students chose this N-word lesson and their assignment was to implement a professional, to design a professional learning for adults and teach the adults how to actually implement the lesson with students in their classroom. So why, while this is so significant is that the figure has some talk prompts that the students actually came up with and that they taught the teachers to use and then that the teachers implemented through their lessons in the school. And why this figure is so important is that um, it exemplifies some of the transformation that occurred within the school over time. When, in 2013, this would not have been addressed. There was no social justice course. There was no students leading the professional learning of adults. There was no adults taking the risk to implement this particular kind of sensitive topic and lesson with their students. And so this particular figure and the questions that it raises, for example, do you ever think that the use of the N-word is appropriate? Why or why not? And inviting that conversation school-wide for adults and for students to wrestle with and grapple with reflected a fundamentally different kind of way of operating and a different capacity of the school to engage young people and also to address the issues that impacted young people on a day-to-day basis in the school. And so that's why I put it here. Um, yeah, so I asked about, do you feel comfortable reading a social media post out loud to a friend with the N-word in it? Share, think about and share places or circumstances where you have seen or heard the N-word, books, music, graffiti, films, comedy shows, conversations. And so this entire school community of over 2,000 people were engaged and engaged in these kinds of conversations um, led by students, which is the important thing, designed by students. And so I put that figure in the book because it exemplifies a tremendous transformation in the school's capacity to address issues and problems as they emerged. How did the 2015 summer relationship retreat influence the relationship between teachers, administrators, black and brown students, and old and new staff? What were its short and long-term outcomes? So it was a pivotal moment in the project. Um, This retreat was an opportunity to bring all the parties that you just mentioned together um, in a non-hierarchical way. So, you know, we had teachers and administrators and students sitting in groups, having conversations about race and racism, doing systems analysis, looking at data together, generating solutions together and those sorts of things. And it was the first time, it was significant because it was the first time that all these different parties came together uh, in this particular kind of fashion where, you know, students were talking and teachers were talking and they were exchanging ideas. And we did a, we were very intentional about facilitating in a way to reduce the power hierarchies within the organization. Um, And so it opened up a new way of 
being and interacting in community with one another that uh, was core and foundational to how the work moved forward in years, uh, in, in the subsequent years, in which was in a way the seed that created the conditions for something like this inward activity to be created by students in a social justice course. Um, so that's, it was a very, very pivotal moment. And in the sixth and seventh year when we did retrospective interviews about people's experiences over the course of the project, consistently people named the retreat as one of the um, most important and consequential activities that we did over the duration of the five years where we collaborated with the school. And there's lots written about it um, in, in the book. Uh, it's a recurring kind of thing because people constantly referenced it and referred to it throughout. You write the following, if you don't mind me asking, on page 41. Uh, hiring Black and Brown employees is a critical step in increasing Black and Brown influential presence for two reasons. First, Black and Brown adults possess a distinct capacity to notice and name racism in its various manifestations. Second, Black and brown adults are more likely to take action to address the problems they see, but not always. Can you clarify what you mean? Yeah, sure. So that particular uh, passage comes from chapter one, where I write about this idea of black and brown influential presence. And basically what I'm trying to convey there is that it's a good thing to have um, black people Black adults in particular in school buildings that have Black children. And there's a good thing to have Brown adults, uh, adults who speak Spanish in buildings with, you know, Latinx students. And it's good to have Asian, uh, you know, adults in buildings that have Asian students. That's basically what I'm trying to convey. But it's important to have them there. But it's also important to have them in positions of power. And it's important to have numbers, right? Like you want to get as many as possible because that allows people to express themselves, to move in ways that are least less likely and dangerous and places them in a position of vulnerability when there's not as many people. So the general thing that I'm hoping to convey with that passage is that, you know, 20 black people in a building uh, and, you know, 40 people of color is better than four. Um, and amongst those 40, it's good to have uh, not only the numbers, but amongst those 40, five of those 40 should be in positions of leadership, power, and influence. Um, and so there's power in numbers. There's also powers, power in positional authority. And basically what I'm arguing is that for Black and Brown adults to be influentially present, requires that they have access to power and that power can come by way of numbers, authority, so on and so forth. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, do you mind sharing with us what you are working on next as your subsequent project? Do you have any new work underway as a current project that you could share with us? Yes, thank you for the question. Um, I'm doing a lot to promote Stuck Improving and I'm in the process to process of um, creating supplemental resources that will be available online. So these are mini lectures and 
supplemental resources, things that didn't quite make it into the book, but that are useful for educators, parents, as well as for research researchers. So I'm very excited. I received a small, um, what's called creativity grant award from my university to translate some of what's in the book into uh, visualizations, stuff that can work in to influence kind of broader public conversation. So that's something I'm doing. And intellectually, that's really helping me translate a professional and academic text into something that's more accessible to a more mainstream audience. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm also in the process year three of a Spencer Foundation funded project that looks at the um, at equity directors. So district equity directors um, who are administrators typically at the district level and school districts who are tasked with uh, the responsibility to help the district um, develop, implement and advance racial equity priorities. Um, and so we're in the third year of that. That's a project that I'm co-PI with, with two colleagues. One is Ann Ishumaru from University of Washington and the other is Terrence Green from University of Texas at Austin. And so the three of us are wrapping up that project and we'll start writing about, uh, you know, we'll start writing up our findings this coming year as we're winding down our data collection. So that's been exciting. And then the final thing that I've been spending a lot of energy on is working to, uh, I wrote a book called Magical Black Tears, a protest story. Um, it's a children's picture book um, that focuses on uh, two children who are curious about why people are protesting in the street and they go out, um, you know, against their parents' wishes, they sneak out in the night to find out what's happening with these protests in their neighborhood. And in the process, we learn not only why people are in the street, but also learn the magical power of people um, who are committed to racial justice and making the world a more racially just world. Um, I started um, a process of creating a traveling museum exhibition that's based on the themes that are covered in the book Magical Black Tears. And it will be, it will be a museum exhibition that engages young people through interactive play um, and independent play and exploration in exploring the big idea that direct action and protest creates a more racially just world. And so those are three uh, things that I'm working on the stuck improving supplemental visualization and videos and supplemental resources, wrapping up my study of district equity directors with my colleagues and in the very early stages of designing and um, moving to create this museum exhibition for children ages four to 12 to understand the relationship between racial justice and direct action and protest. Those projects sound extraordinary. Thank and you. I wish you only the best of luck with seeing them to completion and only the best of luck in the many small steps of self-sacrifice involved in bringing them from idea to reality. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for the close read of the book um, and the questions and, uh, you know, it was hard for me to pick which questions, uh, you know, I really kind of wanted to engage, but because there were so many good ones and it just reflected, you know, your care and commitment and, you know, your deep dive into the book. So thank you so much. I really enjoy having an opportunity to 
to uh, share. Thank you. It was my humble honor, and I cannot emphasize that enough. Thank you. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books Network and the New Books in African American Studies channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have been in dialogue with Dakota Irby. He is an associate professor of educational policy studies at University of Illinois at Chicago, where he teaches in the Urban Education Leadership Program. He is also the founding director of the university's Call Me Mister initiative, which supports the development of male teachers of color. Today, we have been discussing his new book, Stuck Improving, Racial Equity and School Leadership, published by Harvard Education Press 2021. Thank you.